Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name is Wendy, and I'm joined by my psychic and best friend, Bardi. Hello, Bardi. Hello, Wendy. And our tactics guy and Mourinho baiting friend, <laughs> Nathan A. Clark. Hello, Nathan. Uh, it's your boy. How's it going? What happened last night on Twitter, Nathan? Uh, you know, same as always. I, I, okay. <laughs> we, I, I, we're going to talk about Ndombele later, but um, I, I tweeted about Ndombele. I, 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 my friend Mads. Uh, tweeted something I don't know two years ago about Mourinho and Pogba and how uh, Mourinho, uh, how Pogba was the superior asset essentially and I copied I quote tweeted that tweet copying it word for word uh, and it's got um I mean I muted it but I just checked it now just as we're about to record and it's got it's got um some some positive interactions and some negative interaction um but I mean mainly what I was doing is I wanted to draw the comparison between Mourinho's handling of Pogba and Mourinho's handling of Domley rather than suggest things are as bad now at Spurs as they were at United with Mourinho. But I do also think it's quite possible they could get that way. Sure, there was definitely some resonance there. I'm out of interest. Had you remembered that tweet from Mads? Yes, yes, because it, I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I think of it fairly often. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, before we get stuck into talking about the Man U game, I just need to do some shameless self-promotion. Um, I'm starting, or have started, a new podcast with Flav who uh, hosts the Fighting Cock um, if you are a Fighting Cock patron you've already heard that podcast because a few of them have been released on that feed it's called 15 Minutes with Flav and Windy it's basically us talking about a subject of our choosing or of your choosing for 15 minutes and when the timer goes we stop talking about it and so far we've done schools we've done first girlfriends we've done first jobs we've done what is the point um, those kind of things it's been a lot of fun so far we think uh, people are going to enjoy it if you enjoyed the episode that I did of this podcast with Flav and you enjoyed us interacting on that then give it a list 15 minutes with Flav and Wendy it'll be on all of your usual podcast platforms very soon uh, but we have a Spurs win to talk about we finally won our first win in any competition since the 16th of February that's absolute madness <laughs> our first home win since the 2nd of February um, Bardi you right here that that was Mourinho's longest run without a win in his managerial career yeah it just goes it just goes to show that he's a manager who's even though we remember his days at Man United being pretty bad, they've never been this bad before. This is the darkest his managerial form has ever got. And um, I, I don't know. I don't know if this would play on someone on someone like Marina, whether it play on his mind or not. But it must have been affecting him. And I don't know if it, anything can affect his confidence, but it must have been playing on his mind a little bit. And it's great that we've um, finally got out of that rut. Wait, is this being measured in games or days? <laughs> Um, games. This okay. is measured in right. games. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say like, <laughs> like far be it from me to defend Mourinho, but it's like there's been no football. Okay, yeah. It, what was that? <laughs> seven? Was that six? Seven games. Without Seven really games. Said, this was our eighth game, yeah. That's quite a lot. It's a lot. I, I did read some gammon earlier tweeted <laughs> that uh, actually since Mourinho took over at Spurs, only Liverpool and City have accumulated more points than we have. That is completely yeah. unverified. I cannot say for certain. No, that no that's not true. true. That's not true at all. And I've seen okay. stuff like that go around a lot. I saw it on uh, the, the Spurs Reddit. There was something about when Kane and Son and Bergwijn were out injured and it's just, it's just not, it's not it's true. There's a lot of, and the other day Mourinho was talking about like Drogba's record on him, and he read out the appearances columns for goals. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, said he scored a goal Fake a game. News. Which is like Drogba's a really interesting case because he's regarded, and I think probably quite rightly, as as a, an all-time striker. But his actual goals per game record is like abysmal amongst those mm-hmm. level of players. But he was, you know, a big game. He player. had two he hot the seasons. Important goals, yeah. Essentially, he had two hot seasons, and and also, you know, showed up in finals and and scored, you know, the one goal that won the game in the final sort of thing, rather than so using Drogba. Anyway, <laughs> the point is. 
just uh, people. If you read a number, people will just <laughs> completely accept <laughs> it must be the absolute truth. It's not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I must admit, I looked at it and thought that cannot be right because I was thinking of Wolves in particular. I was thinking of Wolves from Sheffield United, who I suspect will be ahead of us. Uh, also, Chelsea surely have had a good run and they'll be ahead of us. So yeah, I, I did think straight away that that can't be right, but it there, got traction. There was there was a point in the season when Mourinho first took over where we were flying in the form table, but then mm. as injuries took their toll, that form obviously dropped away so right now that's not true but I think at one point we were um, we were one of the highest performers. At one point Tim Sherwood's win ratio was second to none. True. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry I just couldn't help but chuckle there. Um, Mark Lynch on Twitter he says I've been a lot more impressed with the two performances than pre-lockdown. We've got attacking players back and they're starting to get fit. Diet in particular looks so much better or am I completely mad? Bardi is Mark completely mad? No, I don't think so. There's there's obviously there's um there's people looking for the looking for the positives and everything, but I think our performances against Manchester United against West Ham were vastly improved to the performance we we were seeing before the lockdown. So that is definitely the case. I'm not saying the performances are perfect. I thought in spells against Man United because I, I missed the Man United pod. I thought in spells against Man United we looked pretty good. And at moments against West Ham, a terrible West Ham, we looked okay. I'm more positive about us now than I was when I walked out of the stadium after we lost to Norwich on penalties, for sure. And Nathan, we spoke at length about the setup for the Man United game being the right setup for that game, mm. but you were concerned about how we would approach other games. Uh, what did you make of the setup for West Ham? Uh, well, we we grew into it. I think we struggled for uh, the opening uh, the opening quarter, as it were, because we now have our halftime break and our, our water breaks at, at sort of twenty minute intervals as well. Um, and I don't, I'm 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 assuming that there was some sort of tactical tweak, um, certainly by one of the sides after the first water break, because after then uh, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but things really peaked up in the first twenty minutes when we tried to move the ball in a slow and controlled manner. We couldn't get it through their midfield. And when we tried to move the ball in a fast and aggressive manner, we very quickly lost it. After that, we started to, again, I think, force it long, play fast and lose it, but then press quite well. Having lost it and managed to sort of pin West Ham back after that, uh, we still struggled to to break them down. Um, I think um, an attacking midfield three of Sun, Delhi, and Lucas is going to be somewhat creatively limited. Um, but you know, we we etched away and etched away. We did a good job of restricting their counters and uh, and broke them down. Uh, eventually, to the point where they had to come out and attack, and then of course we put them to the death. Yeah, I think I think Nathan touched on something really interesting there. These um these water breaks we saw in the first water break that Mourinho pretty much took it as a as an opportunity to do tactical shift. He got everybody in a huddle and things changed. Whereas in the water break in the second half, it was literally just a drinks break. So um, I think um, I think how football changes with these with these multiple breaks now. I think we we might see this happen a little bit more where plans can be um, better communicated and things changed because we definitely I think after the the first break and after the um, half time break, our our centre backs definitely got a bit more ambitious and a little bit more confident on the ball whereas before um, Noble playing this kind of weird defensive 10 was able to kind of cut out the passes into the Celso and um, and Sissoko but then uh, as our defenders grew into the game and grew confidence we were able just to bypass the um, bypass Noble it's a bit sort of um, basketball timeout kind of thing isn't it mm, yeah so Bardi said that he feels better than he did having walked out of the Norwich game I actually tweeted last night that I feel more down on Mourinho than I did before the break um, I'm not sure if I still feel like that today. I think I was just a bit down last night. You were down um, before the game, though, Chris, to be honest with you. That's me. true. Yes. I was. I was. I didn't like the team selection. Um, so I think that... I think what it comes from is... I'm not seeing what we're trying to achieve offensively. Hmm. Um, the, the the primary tactic, and this was certainly the case against West Ham, was we try and get the ball to Aurier as high up the pitch as possible and he delivers a first or second time ball. And he was very erratic with his crossing. He wasted a lot of good opportunities to get balls into the box. And there, there wasn't a lot of variety to the play. What I would say, though, and many people pointed this out to me on Twitter and they were right to do so, we are so much more defensively sound now. And that is the, that is the, the basis, that is 
the core of a Mourinho team, isn't it? That, that first and foremost, you set up as a defensively sound outfit that is able to defend narrow where it's appropriate and and not concede shots in the area. And that is certainly the case. And Sanchez and Dyer have been a, a big, big part of that. I mean, obviously, we, we know that Dyer made the mistake for the, the penalty in the first game against United. But across the rest of the game, he was really, really positive. And in this game, perhaps even more so, he was very commanding, I thought. What do you make of Dyer's performance, Nathan? Yeah, so we, we talked about um, he obviously had a, a good performance and also gave up a penalty uh, against United, but looked strong again. I thought looked looked like bold and brave in possession as well. Um, mm. You know, I, I, often I think of Eric Dyer sort of receiving the ball under pressure, dallying for a second to wait for an option, allowing a player to be closed down and then being too slow to turn with the ball and, and sort of losing things that way. But um, he sh- I think he's shifting the ball faster or, or more decisively maybe. Um, but yeah, strong in the air. Uh, I think he looks lighter and I think that that's been, it's been something that we've talked about before. Um, he... Uh... He, he not that he's like been overweight, but he put on a fair amount of muscle mass. He was looking like a rugby player, um, and I think that was affecting his mobility. And he's looking a little a little trimmer after the lockdown, which many people are not. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, you know, a, a more mobile version of Dyer is a, is a much improved player. I think defensively, we looked extra- we we did a good job of restricting United uh, possessing the ball through midfield. We gave up a couple of chances towards the end, and obviously a penalty. So we gave up. Uh, we gave up 1.7 expected goals to United and we gave up 0.8 to West Ham. I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have guessed that much, but I, I guess there was sort of a couple of decent headers, weren't there, uh, in the, in the second half. But, um, so that's uh, two, two and a half across Four two Four nails had a really good chance as well. Yes, yes, yeah. So, I mean, it'd be... Uh, it's felt defensively strong. It doesn't seem to be... It's not so much the case in the numbers. It'd be interesting to see how that goes going forward. I guess we haven't seen... Uh, maybe except for the penalty, but then people say it's a contentious penalty. We haven't seen uh, a major calamitous defensive issue in two games, which <laughs> this season is a big deal, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, West Ham were incredibly passive, which was obviously a help. Um, Bob N64 says, are we actually better defensively or is there some other explanation for not conceding as many as normal? Buddy, what do you think? Is it is it continuity in the back line? Is it the midfield combinations we've used? Is it simply that uh, individuals are playing well I think individuals are playing well um I like Ben Davies I think he's been playing pretty decent as well he's he was uh, he, he had the ball a lot against United and he, he played okay last night I I do quite like the Dio Sanchez partnership that's working quite well um yesterday I thought I thought Oreo wasn't too bad either even though he didn't have much coming his way he was had he been smarter in the final third I think we probably would have destroyed West Ham because he did have some really good opportunities to um to lay it on the plate for one of our forwards and I I think Hugo's been very good as well um yeah it, it has been a much better defensive performance but Again, especially against a Manchester United team that was packed full of talent. Uh, last night, Antonio does like to give Spurs the runaround, but he was pretty much marginalised apart from one long ball over the top. And if this is this a Mourinho effect, I don't know. Um, I would like to think so, and I hope so. So the outstanding player in the match last night against West Ham was Lo Celso. Really, really good to have him back. Uh, he played in the double pivot with Sissoko, which I, I suppose was somewhat of a surprise. We've primarily seen Sissoko play in the band in front or as part of three or at least a diamond. Um, so did, fit, did putting him in as a two feel like a risk to you, Nathan? A mild risk, but I also think it would be risky to not play him in that role because he's going to be our best mover of the ball from that area of the pitch, at least at the moment. I think potentially Ndombele can be better, but he's obviously not in that situation at the moment. Um so yeah, when we talk about risk, like yeah, of course, if you not that he's like even vaguely defensively poor, like he's he's very proactive. He gets good defensive numbers, and maybe he can let a runner slip behind him. But then so could like you know maybe the more recognised defensive option in Winks too. Although it was good against United, so maybe that's harsh to be saying right now. Um, mm. So yeah, I think I think a necessary risk, and therefore not really a risk. Harry James says, "What do you think Lacelso's best position will be long term, Buddy? Do you have a favourite Lacelso?" I said to you guys last night, my favourite Lacelso is the the one that sits deep. I've seen him play wide a few times for Argentina. Uh, obviously, he was quite effective with Betis playing further forward. 
But I think for us, in that deeper role, playing a, a, a version of um, Moussa Dembele, we saw that in some games in the FA Cup against Southampton away. And we saw that last night. He, I mean, he was able to influence the game from that deep position. Most touches, most opposition half passes, most successful passes. You know, he won possession back 13 times. I, I really like him in this deep role. I think, I think that's where his future is for us. I, I, I really like him there. I think it's also worth saying that people look at Lacelso and say, "Well, there's no goals, no assists." Hmm. I, I think that's the wrong. I think that's the wrong framework to be judging him against. I think he, you need to look at Lacelso as more of a Modric than than an Eriksson, for example, and he's more likely to get the hockey assist or more likely to break the opposition offence and then switch it quickly, transition, allow us to transition and move the ball vertically. I mean, I can't help but think if we'd signed Lacelso at the point where. Dembele was declining. Oh, I mean, it just makes me sad to think that. Actually, <laughs> it's probably best I don't think that. Yeah, I think I think Lacelso alongside a a. I mean, Sissoko did fine. He did okay. He made some decent interceptions. He covered a lot of ground. But there's always that moment when he gets the ball and it's just like now move it quickly or change the direction of the play or lay it into into Lacelso. Then move 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 into a different angle for him. I think perhaps with Winks alongside, we I think we did see a bit. Lacelso and Winks before lockdown. Maybe with Winks, but obviously a better defensive midfielder alongside him. I think I think there's a, a, a glorious partnership there. Mm. So talking about midfield combinations, we had an email from Joe Gilby. Uh, he said, I have a question about our midfield. To me, it looks like our midfield is crying out for three players, a Christian Eriksen type, a Luka Modric type, and a Victor Wanyama type. At the moment, we're trying to shoehorn Sissoko into the Wanyama role, trying to shoehorn Delhi and Lamella into the Eriksen role, and trying to make the Celso or Winks uh, into the Modric role, and trying to pretend our incredible record signing Tongi is happy as Larry warming the bench. It looks like we have a lot of really fantastic midfielders who really don't fit together in any playable system. Would an out-and-out holding midfielder solve all these problems by freeing up the Celso and Tongi in a midfield three. Where does this leave Delhi? Does this mean Winks never fits the system? Uh, and he says he's having sleepless nights thinking about this and feels utterly lost. Help. <laughs> Nathan, what do you think? Do, is there any way we can make our current midfield options work? I know you're going to say we primarily we need to sign a defensive midfielder, but even with a defensive midfielder, what do we do? Primarily, we need to sign a defensive midfielder. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that things like the Sissoko and the Celso midfield two can sort of work mid well, I think we're still going to struggle because you don't want Lacelso to be deep to Soko too often, um, and then it's a trouble to get the ball into a position where it's ahead of Soko and where Lacelso is getting on the ball. Uh, but I think function. I've been really impressed through two games with Musa Soko's defensive midfield work as the deepest midfielder. Not so much like sitting, not dropping between centre backs, all that kind of stuff. But um, you know, as 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 a sort of a, I guess you'd say a defensive number eight, um, just keeping it tidy, moving the ball on first. And I think that, yeah, as a result, his best partner is Lacelso because Lacelso is the best ball mover in the squad. And, and like we talked about specifically with the West Ham game, but also generally you, you take any kind of risk with Lacelso's sort of adventurousness because you, you need someone who can progress the ball through midfield in that way. So I think that's our best midfield for now. Long term, yeah, get a, get a good rounded defensive midfielder, either one that pushes forward or sits back and you can decide how you want to shape the midfield based on that. And then... Then, yeah, you can partner him with Ndombele, maybe, if that's going to work out. Or if not, Nacelso, you can play them as a three, definitely. Or you can move Nacelso forward. I think, to go back to the previous question, Nacelso's best position is wherever he is going to be most needed by us. Whether, depending on out of the makeup of our squads and who's fit and who we're playing against, etc, etc, etc. You know, he's got a, a brilliant skill set that, that works both in multiple positions and in multiple roles. Um, so, um he can thrive depending on, on, on what's needed, definitely. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Who, I think for now, the, the Sissoko La Celso midfield makes sense. And Winks in there, you know, in either role um, certainly uh, can fill in, but, but um, remains to be seen sort of long term, depending on who we may or may not sign. Okay. So one of the reasons that I felt a bit uh, down about Mourinho's Tottenham last night was I couldn't get my head around his use of the squad and in particular his use of the subs or lack of use for subs. So across these two games, I mean, there was there was kind of meme-like banter that Mourinho would use all five subs really early and mm. do all these crazy things. So he's used five out of his possible ten subs so far. Um, some people have taken that as a positive, saying, you know, it's really good that we need to kind of get the running into the legs of our players who were uh, fresh back from injury. My stance is... 
that's a huge gamble to take that we're kind of putting them at risk of um, suffering muscular injuries by not giving them sufficient rest. We're also not giving fitness opportunities to other fringe players who we might need for some of the remaining games. And there's the obvious point that we're missing out on potential sort of tactical um, opportunity as well. Um, Bardi, were you surprised by how few subs Mourinho used in the first two games? Mourinho has been a manager throughout his career. He's always gone through seasons with using a, a limited amount of players. I think at the moment he has a core set of players that he trusts. And those are the players that we're seeing at the moment. I'm not sure if he's sending a message to the players who aren't playing. I don't know if he's sending a message to to the chairman and everybody else. But he seems to have the players that he wants to play. And he plays them. And he's not giving away three minutes for the sake of people getting on the pitch just to have a run around. He's making his substitutions according to what he thinks needs to happen in the match. And yeah, he, he he's not giving three minutes to anybody um, that, he, that he thinks doesn't deserve it. Obvious... I'm not saying that's... I'm not saying that's uh, a correct way but I'm just saying that's what I think he's doing the the obvious loser in this is Ndombele who we were all hoping to see a lot more of um how do you how do you feel about this Nathan I mean to, to, from a, a non from an Ndombele perspective but also from a kind of Tottenham perspective it's it's frustrating I I defended uh the the, the limited substitution use after the Man United game because we are in that equal game state because of you know various fitnesses and everything but I was definitely frustrated with the West Ham game because I think that that was a perfect opportunity to at the very least you know get five minutes of of, of game time into Ndombele's legs um, to you know demonstrate to everybody publicly that he was still in his plans that that all of the drama that went down during the lockdown was for something and about something um, so I was I was really frustrated because there were unused subs there was opportunity to bring him on there was a good circumstance to bring him on there were players to take him off for take off for him uh, so I'm I'm really frustrated and then obviously uh, a bunch of uh, French sourced rumours came out directly or suspiciously directly after the game of course uh, but it's, it's 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 really annoying so the interesting thing about those rumours was that Alistair Gold predicted that this would happen he said that if Ndombele doesn't get game time you might notice that you know the people around him will, will leak some information to the mm. French press that did happen Mourinho obviously denied it straight away um, Alistair was very brave and kind of fronted Mourinho up on the on the subject in the in the press conference post match. I don't. I it's really difficult to work out with um, Mourinho when he is being totally genuine or not. He he said something along the lines of he sometimes wants to thank the players who or, or apologize sorry to the players who he didn't give an opportunity to who've been working hard in training. And I couldn't tell without hearing him say those words and the tone of voice whether he meant that meant that genuinely like he was you know sorry to Ndombele in particular that he couldn't give him minutes or whether there was a kind of slight hint of sarcasm there because what we do know is that Ndombele didn't warm up during the game he was the only substitute that didn't get off the bench and and go through the motions with the warm-up that might be because he wasn't asked to Um, who knows but it it certainly seems odd. Bardi how are you feeling about the Ndombele situation more generally? Um, well, Alistair wrote an article and he, he, he talks about, he obviously was at the pitch and I don't think he's, he's biased one way or the next, but he did say that Ndombele looked like he wasn't interested. And if you compare him to Vertonghen, Alderweireld and Jedson as well, that he just seemed to be lacking the effort to put in and the training. And, and perhaps, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to judge, I don't know, I don't want to judge the individual because I don't know, I don't know him. But, um, at this point in time, who, we, the only person we can, we can trust in is Marina. And if Mourinho chooses not to play him, then it's Mourinho's decision. Um, I, I, it's a complicated, it's a complicated case. I, I don't know. I've, obviously, the bits I've seen of Ndombele, he looks amazing. And last night, he could have, he could have really changed the game for us, getting on the ball. And you know, when you see Lucas getting the ball deep, and you're like, God, if that had been Ndombele, perhaps something could have happened there. But I don't know. I, right now, the only thing I can do is side of Mourinho and say there's a reason why he's not picking him, and um, Mourinho knows best whether or not that. Right, I'm not only time at all. Yeah, I've, I've flip-flopped on this. I kind of, I thought that Ndombele's time was done after Mourinho's post-match rant about him. And then during lockdown where Mourinho seemed to be sort of taking extra care to put him through his paces, I thought, well, maybe this is a good sign. Maybe, maybe you know, he's really trying to take him on as a project and, and make a go of this. Um, then it's come out since that Mourinho said he was fixing uh, Ndombele's training gear, basically, that he was making the, the training set up work. 
not actually, you know, giving him personal training sessions as such. And then this handling of him, where he's not even had a single minute, it just seems odd. I, 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 if it's if it's his kind of authoritative form of man management, I don't like it. Frankly, I, I think it's I think it's a mistake. I think he's going to burn bridges, and I think one of the most talented midfielders in Europe could end up leaving us as a result of it. Um, what do you think, Nathan? Yeah, no, that's that's my worry. Well, uh, I, do, I don't want to like um, suggest that Ndombele is completely faultless. That he's, you know, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's really important that this is a balanced conversation. I mean, obviously, we don't know the details. We can only go by like what we can sort of mind read on on the on on uh, you know in the stadium and what the rumors are and everything. I I you know I find it completely feasible, and he does have some sort of history in this area as like as a teenager, really. Um, yeah. So I if you know I find it completely believable that Ndombele has has put feet wrong you know we saw his performance against Burnley of course you know uh, I'm sure there's definitely more he could be doing but look at Mourinho and the reason I made that that Pogba tweet is like look at Mourinho's history with yeah Pogba with De Bruyne with Salah with Mkhitaryan with uh, you know even go back like Joe Cole um, Luke Shaw Luke Shaw yeah you know again and again and again and again club after club and like I'm, I'm often young players often young players often talented talented players and I'm I'm not saying that like none of those players share any faults what I'm saying is that um Mourinho allows players to fail him quite happily quite readily and then moves on to another club and I think that okay sure yes absolutely Mourinho has won a lot of trophies he's had a lot of wins in games a lot of success I think that that's fading has not faded is not impossible that he can come back and improve in those areas but I think that he does a lot of damage to the other assets that he prioritizes himself of course which manager wouldn't but to the extent where you know by the time he's left your club you might have had some success but it, it it's it's done you in because you've you know broken your transfer records to bring in a player that Mourinho will then scapegoat for his underperformance in training mm. If we take this at face value, if we assume that Mourinho is just pit- picking the, the fittest players, the most appropriate players for the system he wants to play, um, let's think of it in this context. Gareth Thomas says, for those who want Ndombele in the team, who should be dropped to make way? Would it be Deli or Lo Celso? Bardi, what do you think? If if everything is fine and Mourinho is simply picking the best 11 players for his system, where does Ndombele come in? I mean, he doesn't he doesn't replace Lo Celso. He, at the moment, he probably replaces Deli. You play, um, play Sissoko in the defensive Midfield row, Lo Celso and Endobele the other side, and then you play your front three of Sun, Bergvine and Kane, and that that's how you move forward from there. Where that leaves Delhi long term, I don't know. That's the that's the big question mark at the moment. Where does Delhi fit in? Uh, I don't think Delhi works in a number ten role. Um, he's not influential enough for me for a long long enough period of time over a match. So I think Delhi eventually would be the, probably the one that loses out if if Mourinho is given the time to to build to build that midfield. Field. Um, Endobele should be playing alongside it, but it's, it's not working for one reason or another. And for me, sometimes it's, it's like, um, I mean, we've seen this with Mourinho. If he, if he doesn't get on with De Bruyne, he, he bins him off. And I don't think he's, I don't think he thought De Bruyne was a bad player. I just think at that time he didn't need De Bruyne and the, the, the continued questioning and the press speculation, fan speculation was just too much of a distraction for the, him and the club and everything else. So he just lets them go. I think regarding Salah, he says the club signed him, the club, I signed him, but the club sold him. And there's also the Quadrado is another player as well, which he signed. But I I think during that time at Chelsea, yeah, matter. But but then at Man United, they seem to get on okay. I think I think using Chelsea as an example is is pretty bad because they just collect, especially then they collected sure. footballers and then you know they made they made money off these guys at some point. So that it, it was a business for them. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know where it fits, but I think a lot of it will be down to Ndombele. Mourinho won't change. He knows that. If you read some of the um, the beefs he's had with Jogba and people like that, that it's the player either changes or they're done. Mourinho is not going anywhere unless, the, unless Tottenham fire him. So Ndombele has to change. And if he doesn't change, then he will be sold unless before that happens, Mourinho is sacked. 
I mean, when when you say that um, Ndombele would be coming in for Delhi, you you can make an argument that Mourinho is simply picking the players he thinks are the most effective, and he loves Delhi. We know that, but also Lamela is playing really well, and mm. he he is a viable alternative to Delhi also. So if it's a case of Delhi or Lamela or Ndombele, you can justify you can justify the selection. Totally, I I think it's when you and so when you look at it in isolation like that, you you can justify. You can you can sort of almost picture. A world in which things get better, but it's the wider context, isn't it? It's what's gone before. It's Mourinho's handling of Ndombele before, and um, his historical handling of similar players that, that gives cause for concern. But I have, I have a question for you, Wendy. Last night during the substitute, substitutions, who do you who do you take off for Ndombele? Who who do you who do you replace? Because Lamella came on for for Delhi, and Lamella had an impact and was he was good in the ball, had a couple of chances, and was highly influential in the second goal. So do you put on? Do you take a risk with Ndombele? Instead of Lamella, or then do you pull off Sissoko, who was playing fine, or Lacelso, who had uh, man of the match performance? That's that's where Ndombele is right now. That I think fitness, forget about fitness wise or anything else, he's just far down the pecking order in terms of form and in terms of um, system that Mourinho is playing. So, what I would have done is ensured that none of the players who were coming back from absences played 90 minutes in either of the games. And Sissoko's played 180, Kane's played 180, Son's played. Has Son played the whole lot? Did he come off last night? He came off. He came off. He came off. There's been a lot of minutes for players who are just back. So I probably would have brought on... I mean, the other thing is that the own the own goal, which was slightly fortuitous to get, uh, did sort of... It did change things for Mourinho because it opened the game up to an extent and it, it meant that he didn't need to necessarily bring on Ndombele for Sissoko, for example. He didn't need to be more adventurous with his selection. So that kind of goes in his favour as well. But yeah, I mean, I would have found a way to, to get Kane off the pitch earlier and, and rest him. Um, uh, and, and bring someone else on, whether that be Cessnion and Dombele or whoever. Having said that, you know, leaving Kane on the pitch led to him scoring a goal, and boy, wasn't that nice. Nathan, you tweeted some klaxons about Harry Kane last night. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Why was that? Well, we talked about uh, in the previous episode about he the ex- the extent to which he was a passenger against United, uh, and he very much was, except for you know like five minutes where he was drifting out to the left and he had a couple of nice passes, but other than that, he was basically not involved in the game. Uh, and we talked about the wider context of this, which is that uh, Harry Kane is one of the best strikers in the world, but for the last two years, he's underperformed seemingly likely quite possibly because of a fitness issue stemming from a series of injuries mainly ankle injuries and playing a hell of a lot of football and coming back from injury too soon again and again and again he's finally had lengthy break after an injury because there was simply no football to being played he's come back uh looking a little rotund on the waist which i'm literally glad to see because it means that he has been resting resting it means that he has been fueling and it means that he has been healing Um, and very quickly we've gone from oh god he's a passenger try not to think about it try not to think about it against United to he's had a shot in the box he's had a shot in the box with his foot he's burst through in behind the defence kept the ball for multiple touches kept ahead of the defenders and converted the shot and then right at the death when he probably shouldn't have been on the pitch because Ndombele could have been subbed on for him he jumps towards a far post cross left foot for nearly gets to it it's it's a sprint and a leap um, and there are examples of explosivity into his game again, which for me is really exciting. It's it's too soon. Like it was too soon last week to say Harry Kane is dead. He'll never be a professional of a footballer again. It's too soon to say Harry Kane is back. We have the best striker in the world again. Um, hooray! Um, but it's it's a big exciting step in that direction for me, and I'm I'm more positive about Harry Kane than I am about anything else to do with Spurs for sure. And the good news is he didn't pick up any muscle injuries <laughs> that we're aware we of so and, far. And exactly. And he's now got a little break. So that, that's kind of come at the perfect time in terms of his recovery. Um, so let's hope that he continues on that kind of upward trajectory because it was so good to see him looking 
shot hungry and you know he had a couple of early thwacks at goal which were from range but he managed to keep on target and he seemed to grow in confidence from that point so really good um he 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 also um hit a bit of a milestone body yeah he's um only Aguero scored more goals than him after um 200 Premier League matches which is that's some going for Kane who who's not been playing for a a free-flowing Man City team who just kind of thump everybody um he's also now the joint second um He's third on the list of most London derby goals, which is a weird stat to, for them to throw out, but <laughs> it's still it's still a nice stat anyway. Um, yeah, I was I was happy with Kane. He was he was pretty bad the first twenty twenty five minutes, but I think that was maybe down in a large part to how we were playing. And Nathan's right; he did have a couple of proper bursts of of speed, which is good to see. His his legs held together. You know, you know, sometimes when you see a Formula One car and it gets a puncture as it's going as it's accelerating and just bits of tyre fling out all over the place his hamstrings didn't do that which was great Hmm. Um, no so I'm happy and you know it surprised me in in his post-match comments he was like I'm 26 years old and you go bloody hell you know we think I don't know how how you perceive Kane but I perceive Kane as like this this man this 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 figurehead this leader he's 26 years old you know and it's incredible the kind of presence and influence he has and he's he's still he's still a boy so um, he's still got I've, I've now turned He's, he's got a lot of goals in him, so um, let's keep him forever. I love him so much. I love him so much. Uh, Alec Dipkrinski, hope I pronounced that right. He says, is the Aurier role, i.e. Serge pushed up high on the right flank, deployed nominally as a right back but playing more as an, as an out winger, a result of Mourinho's squad limitations, or do you see it as a planned tactic that Jose would stick with, even with different possibly better personnel available. What do you think, Nathan? And he, he also adds, if it is here to stay, name a realistic target that you'd like to see replace Aurier in that role. Kieran Trippier. Um, okay, <laughs> is it a matter of squad limitations or is it a planned tactic? Uh, yes to, to, to both. Like, um, it makes a lot of sense for the current shape of our squad. It doesn't make sense for Sessegnon, but it makes sense for the rest of our squad. Um, and also, it's, you know, a smart way to set up generally. So even with different squad circumstances, it would be, you know, uh, a smart approach um, regardless. So it, it could well be here to stay. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, right backs. So uh, I like Jaden Bogle. Um, oh god, I haven't. Where's my list of right backs? <laughs> um, I like that you have a list, just just a list of possible <laughs> transfer targets, just hanging around on my desk. Where's that piece of paper? Uh, I literally do, but uh, I don't have it to hand. <laughs> Hang on, someone fill the air from here while I look up some names. Uh, I, I think this this Aurea role has, is it proves quite effective. It, it gives us the ability to switch the ball. It gives us um, a player running in behind Sun and Lucas or Bergvine. They tend to get the ball and cut inside. It gives us um, a bit of penetration down the side. And had had he just been a bit smarter with his with his final touch and his final ball, then as I said earlier in the pod, I think we would have we would have marmalised mm. West Ham. It's um, it's something we saw him do it into with with Mikon. He switched on it. He said left. He had Mikon bombarding down the right. So um, it's a it's very it's a very Mourinho thing. But I I think it works. And perhaps if we just improve the the person we use as the point of the arrow, then uh, we could maybe get some joy from it. It's really interesting because Aurier has actually got a, d- a decent number of assists this season. Most of them, from my reckoning, have come from slightly deeper crosses. And I think when he's higher up the pitch, he actually lacks the kind of composure <laughs> to, to take a to take a touch and mm-hmm. consider his options. He's he's much yeah. better when he just whips it in from an early. He's a, he's a really good crosser from deep, actually. Similarly mm. to Trippier, I would say. Um, I, th- I think Trippier was better at the volleyed crosses, where half volley cross. So good um, at those. Yeah, he was pretty good at those. I I mean he's. It's always weird. Aurier is fine in the kind of middle, in like this, this, the part of the pitch between the halfway line. But then you put him at the other either end, and he's yeah. a little bit haywire. Yeah. He still, for me, he's, he still does do his one-man pressing machine on his own, where he just charges out of position, and um, he could easily get exposed if the other team were a bit smarter. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I still think Aurier is is um, a pretty bad footballer, to be honest, and definitely not the kind of right back that you want if you've got top. I was going to say top four aspira- aspirations, but title aspirations. I mean, we need to. Imp- that's, that's a fairly easy upgrade, I would say, right back. I mean, I'd say the same about left back, to be honest. And obviously, defensive field stands out as another easy upgrade. Mm. Um, Nathan, do you have your list? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I like Emerson. I like Ona Aina. Uh... Who else have we got? Um, like Matty Cash and Vogel, I mentioned. 
Uh, funny, funny you mentioned Cash. <laughs> we had an email about Cash. Um, he he's playing there for the first. He's playing right back for the first time, as I understand it, this season. He's previously been, I want to say, a midfielder. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, who was it? Austin Stanovich emailed us about Matty Cash. He said this has been his first year at right back, so it could be a risk, but he's looked great all season. Yes. <laughs> So you agree with Austin? Yeah, no, I, you um, know, it is, yes. He, he, well, he's played like a mixture of different roles. I think this season he's sort of more been sort of fixed into the right back role. Um, but he's, he looks good. He's doing good. Obviously, he, he wants to continue to develop on his, his defensive game. But, um, yeah, if we, if we're looking at like Aurea role players, then like Cash and Vogel Championship fullbacks who are like outstanding attacking could do with some defensive work are the ones to be looking at. I really like Vogel. I like Nathan Ferguson, who's out of contract, but he's mm. he's not played that many games, so he um, I, I, I feel like he'd be in a kind of buy-in loan back. Um, the other thing to say is it is insane how many good young English right-backs there are in the Premier League at the moment. And I'm thinking Trent Alexander-Arnold, I'm thinking Rhys James, who I think is exceptional. Aaron's. I'm thinking um, Max Aaron's. I'm, less, I'm, okay. I'm not so keen on Aaron's. James Justin at Leicester is really good. Okay. And Tarek, Tarek Lamptey, who's joined Brighton from Chelsea, yeah. is a brilliant ball carrier from right-back. These are all fantastic young English right-backs. We've got a plethora of talent and I assume that one of them will end up playing left-back for the national team because you can't get them yeah. all on the pitch at once. It's interesting. Scotland have two of the best left-backs in the world and no right-backs, and we've got a plethora of right-backs and no left-backs. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, bring on the, the, the great British national team. Um, yeah, yeah. What was I going to say? <laughs> I forgot. I, I was desperate to say something and I forgot what it was. Just carry on. <laughs> was it Max Ahrens? No, no. I mean, he's he's you know he's on the short side, um, so I, I understand sort of any reservations with that talented player. Um, I mean, if you're going to sign Max Ahrens, just use Walker Peters. Okay, Drog914 from Reddit says, How much of our early struggles under Jose can be attributed to our lack of fluidity on counters? It seems to me this is a huge component of his tactics. I thought there was actually some I thought there were actually some bright moments yesterday, he means the um United game. Although generally pre-COVID we were often abysmal, granted we were missing players. And he also says, What is our best midfield forward grouping to take advantage of this? So it's around the uh the fluidity of counterattacks. And I agree that I thought there were some some decent counterattacks against United off and started by Lamella. Um, I thought there were also some some decent attacks against West Ham, though we didn't really play on the counter so much because they just gave up possession, essentially. Um, but what do you think, Bardi, about our fluidity and, and who do you think are our best midfield and forward options? And it's very difficult to be fluid when, when your midfield is so bitty and then it's even more difficult to be fluid when you're, when you're best counter-attacking for its son and then Kane are injured. Um... I mean, when Mourinho started, we saw an upturn in form, which is probably a new manager bounce. But then as players got injured and perhaps the new manager bounce wore off, that's where our problem started. Um, I'm not I'm not too con- I'm not too concerned about it. Um, I think this year, the way we're playing and the way we're set up is I, I personally I wanted us to play with a plan for next season. But I think Mourinho is still very much chasing top four, top five. So he's literally just doing whatever he can to, to get that but by taking it by doing his little little tweak and as little gambling as possible sticking to our strengths and going very much the blood and thunder um, tactic that Pochettino used to great effect in his last seven eight months at Tottenham well his last year really of just trying to get the biggest guns on the pitch at, at once and blow teams away so um, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not too worried about fluidity at the moment yeah that's me I'm not too oh yeah I'm not too worried about it Nathan how do you feel about our counter-attacking prowess this is really interesting this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently so like um, you your set possession attacks that's something that you drill and train and you use uh, meta ideas and micro ideas and you use drill after drill after drill and you have various roles and you roll Fuego de position yes yes <laughs> positional play um and all of that kind of good interesting stuff whereas counterattacks not that you'd never coach them like there's never any involvement from the manager at all but much more is the case where you just let your players improvise you let them get on with it you give them the tools and the circumstances which is space to attack into and you let them come up with something new every time because they're harder to read um, and because very good players will just consistently make chances out of counterattacks the 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 creation aspect of a counterattack is turning the ball over in the first place um 
This is really interesting. So again, there you can there is still some you know you do some counter attack drills. You say Sun, I still want you to say wide if you don't have the ball until this point, etc. But uh, why have our counter attacks not been very good? Maybe our counter attackers haven't been very good. Maybe it's a matter of Kane's fitness, which we've just been discussing. Um, but I also wonder if it's just that counter attacks aren't that good anymore. If most teams can counter press to at least a reasonable level, you're taking off 10, 15, 20% of the effectiveness of attacking into space like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer for this at all. I think it's really interesting um, because, yeah, we were we were pretty wasteful with our counters against United and, and that's been the case, you know, at least a moderate amount. I think that we've seen towards the end of games, West Ham being the example most recently, but again earlier in the season as well, at the end of games, when we're in the leads and teams are really exerting ourselves, we've been much more effective on the counter but when we're an equal game state or when we're one goal above with with 30 minutes plus to play our counter attacks have been pretty poor or maybe not even poor but just not fruitful and um i think that's that's definitely one to to keep an eye on or maybe even something for me to do a bit of a deep dive on i i think a lot of it is also down to the lack of no longer ericsson we don't have ericsson to help us on the counter attacks um i think against united some of the counter attacks uh kind of fell away because Lamella was Lamella is is fine, but he's very uh, unable to switch the play. Like mm. he, he, for him to yeah for him to open up the other side of the pitch, it takes an age, and it often results in him just running sh- in a straight line across the pitch. <laughs> he does like so, to do that. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think I think not having Eriksson there has has weakened our counter attacking. And when you watch Eriksson now, after a few months in Italy, the way he plays with Lukaku and Martinez is it's really nice. And I think I think Eriksson not being there has, has affected our counter attacks more than anything else. I think it's also a matter of perspective um I, I i don't think we're especially good or especially bad at counter-attacks but i think there was a period two or three years ago where we were exceptional and therefore we seem a lot worse um comparably um i i totally agree with bardi's point i was going to make the same point myself one of the key aspects of counter-attacking and this doesn't even necessarily mean kind of the potch style counter-attack where you win the ball high and play vertical passes one of the most important parts of counter-attacking is having a player that can start off a counter effectively he can spot the pass before the pass or or even just play the killer pass and nathan you you did a really nice bit of work on twitter probably a year or so ago now maybe six months something like that about how ericsson just keeps things simple how he has just really good first and second touches he gets the ball under control quickly and that allows that creates space for him to do more with it and that will allow Ericsson to in one or two touches get the ball and release it and start something happening we don't have that anymore really Delhi wants touches or certainly the Delhi at the moment wants touches to, to the nth degree he, he takes way too many touches Lucas gets his head down and runs with it he doesn't look for a pass Son is kind of the same like Son you want at the end of a counter-attack not early in the build-up play yeah and yeah. And, yeah. and Kane is Kane is you know we know what Kane's been for the last couple of years so we're kind of lacking the players with the ability to counter-attack I would say the the, the players most suited to counter-attacking well in our team are probably I would say Lamella and probably Ndombele who's got like a really incisive forward pass and and majestic vision I think Lacelso can do it but we're talking about him potentially being a, a bit more of a scrapper in midfield potentially so maybe he's the one winning the ball and then it's going it's going to Ndombele but it, it's partly personnel and it's partly perspective. We've we've got players who can do it, but we just um yeah we ha- we haven't clicked into that gear yet. I think I mean having said that, if if Kane can get back into the type of um, physicality where he's able to score more goals like he did against West Ham that second goal, there's no reason why he can't be finishing off counter attack goals and why we shouldn't be looking for early through balls to him because that was a sign that he can still do that, which is very encouraging. Mm. I think that this is one of the the payoffs of of La Celso being deeper is that yeah he helps. Our, our build-up plays dramatically, but then he's not involved in those games. And that, that sort of Ericsson type pass you're talking about—that's a really good point. I think counter attacks are like they're really exciting, right? You, oh my god, my team have the ball. There's space for attacking behind. Your your vision gets blurry. You look for that. The opposition aren't set. They aren't set. 
uh, yeah, people are out of position and you go, oh my God, I can run into the space or I can play the ball into the space uh, and you see the goal and you get tunnel vision and all of that kind of stuff and you want to play that that big killer pass, definitely. Um, and as you say, Ericsson was so good at playing the short pass in that situation where no one else is thinking of a short pass at all, but suddenly you play five yards across and you find a player who has space to pick out that big pass mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. And yeah, I, I think Lo Celso can be that player who can have that sort of awareness and patience and calmness in those moments. Um, but yeah, that maybe that's the downside of, of playing him in a deeper role in a counter-attack setup. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's a good point with, with having a, a playmaker for the counter-attack. The one thing that restricts Lo Celso um, compared to Ericsson is his one-footedness. I mean, Ericsson could do it off both feet. That was a huge advantage. Advantage Lacelso is very, very left-footed as it stands. I mean, that that could change. Um, anything else you'd like to say on on that? No. So we'll move on to the next one from Miles V Taylor. On the assumption, I mean, this is something we get asked over and over. <laughs> I think it's something people are really interested in. On the assumption that is our, sorry, I'm going to read this again. On the assumption that our chance of getting Champions League is over, what would you rather? Europa League for some European football next year, or no European games at all, so we can have a clear run of a league? Uh, there are there are clear arguments for both, obviously. Um, and there's nothing to say that not having Europe kind of gives you a, a better shot at winning the league. But I think something that's oft overlooked is that it's not just about the fitness issues of playing two games in a week. It's about the planning of training. So if you're playing one match every week, roughly, you are constantly focused on your next opposition for those probably five days that you're training. And you don't have to worry about two, a, a day of travel uh, and match and then a day of recovery. So you've got more time on the training pitch to prepare for one opposition team, which has got to be a huge, huge advantage. Um, we've gone over this before, but just briefly, Buddy, would you like Europa League football or not? Well, the, to win the Premier League now, you've got to do 95, 95, 97 points. I don't think Tottenham is ever going to get to the point where we can do those kind of numbers. Sweet, right, pack it so in. I, We're done. Nice one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think if we look at what uh, Manchester City and Liverpool did last season, what Liverpool done this season, I think can I can I see Spurs putting up those kind of numbers? I, I don't know. I don't think so. So I prefer us to keep the Europe. If we don't have Champions League, then Europa League for me is something that I would like us to be in. It offers us a chance to win silverware. It offers us a chance to get back into the Champions League. So and it's more football matches. And more football matches is always better. You can always forget about the bad things that have happened when Spurs win a game. So <laughs> I, I want Spurs to play as many matches as possible. Yeah. So from like an entertainment perspective. Yeah. Uh... Just you can forget about the misery of your life by watching Spurs because their misery is always <laughs> so yeah you can forget about everything else and Nathan just briefly from you do you have a preference don't like Europa League I uh, think that it does more damage to your league form than it gives you in the potential to win in return uh, I, I think that two games a week is too many games from player perspective training perspective maybe even from an entertainment perspective uh, the opposing argument, the major opposing argument has always been, but we need that Europa League money, right? We earn a lot. Whereas, you know, Chelsea can benefit from not being in Europa League. Whereas even Liverpool can benefit from not being in Europa League. Whereas United have benefited when they're not in Europa League. Uh, they can afford to not play in it, whereas we maybe can't. And that is going to be even more true now uh, than it has been before. So maybe given the circumstances, again, I don't know the details of what the pandemic has and hasn't done in terms of our financials but maybe we're really dependent on it and I think it looks like um, as low as 8th place is going to get Europa League so um, hopefully we're good enough to finish 8th I mean but there are the positives to look at it if you Arsenal who are awful at the moment their their best players are the young players who've benefited from Europa League time Manchester United's best one of Manchester United's best players Rashford benefited from Europa League time we've seen it with Harry Kane that these players get minutes we know Mourinho doesn't like to tinker too much but the Europa League will give young players and squad players those minutes to play football and I think that I think we could all agree that youth players getting minutes is, is an important thing Speaking of that, Droney Mitchell on Reddit, brilliant username by the way, says, do you think we'll ever see Jack Clark play in a Spurs shirt? Nope. Who? <laughs> <laughs> It does feel that way, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, so, Maurizio Pochettino oversaw the signing of Jack Clark and then immediately loaned him out. To a club uh, to, to, to his mate Bielsa at Leeds. The problem with that loan move is that when Jack Clark is no longer Leeds' player, the inclination to actually use him, um, it, it just isn't there, as 
it once was. Mm. So he quickly got recalled. It wasn't working out. And he ended up going to QPR, uh, where, again, he's barely played. Uh, what they should have done, in hindsight, is send him to a League One club and got him... 20 odd games of league one football which would have stood him in really good stead for either a championship or lower prem loan but as ever spurs mess up the the loan and uh it's not looking great for clark what i would say is when i've seen clark play at his own age group level for england so you're talking the best 15 players in the country at that age group he is exceptional he stands out he absolutely stands out he's a very 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 talented player he's also uh quite an unusual player in that he's quite a good size he's quite tall Mm. but he plays out wide that's a bit of a throwback in some ways but i can see that being really handy um from a kind of getting in at the back post and scoring goals from a wide position perspective so i i am still excited about clark i just think it's absolutely crucial that we get the next stage of his development right because as we've seen with many spurs youth prospects over the last well over pochettino's tenure uh we've got a lot of the development wrong uh so it's vital that the next decision for clark is the right one I mean, yeah, he's 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 still only nineteen, and he's obviously a very talented player. It just feels like he's a million miles away from the squad now, and which yeah. is a hard way to to feel about a, a player who literally cost us millions of pounds to purchase recently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in many ways, the same can be said of Cessnion. Yeah, I mean, I I thought he was. I mean, he was, and he is a place to play Premier League football. He was a good Premier League player for Fulham yeah. before he joined us, and he should be, you know, getting more minutes than he is uh like it is it, complicated because he's like he's a premier league ready winger and he's a premier league developing level fullback and like where do you want to prioritize is it about getting a minutes is it about getting him the right specific minutes where he's playing in his role and also how are we as a club utilizing the left back role right now uh, you know he's not going to come in and play a sort of a hybrid center back role is he um no absolutely not so it's 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 um i was really excited about his signing and i've been excited about him as a player for a long time um i i yeah i guess i just i i want to see him be our fifth sub and come on as a wing just to get minutes just for the sake of getting minutes to say that he has them to you know maybe get the occasional goal maybe you know take part in in a, in a counter-attack once the game's dead kind of thing here and there um there's an incredibly incredibly talented attacking left back in there um mm-hmm. and uh he shouldn't be as far away from the team that he is i agree i agree okay one more for the road this is from palindrome pirate another good great name, yeah. name he says should players face retrospective yellows for simulation now that we have VAR and what can be done to mitigate inconsistent VAR decisions Uh, the first point I suppose is in response to the penalty incident at Man United where the penalty wasn't given Uh, and I actually think it's a really interesting talking point and I would say yes they should be given the simulation now that we have VAR given that there is now an opportunity for another referee or refereeing team to look at a decision or an incident in slow motion and decide whether a player has died. But where you draw the line there is really challenging, mm. given that we've already shown that there are major issues with that. Okay, all right. You okay? You take up the position then that you think you should give out yellow to simulation. So I will say, what is simulation? That's a fair point. It's a fair point. Do you, do you, is it simulation trying to win a penalty? Is it simulation trying to get someone a second yellow card? I think if you I think if you start doing that, then it, you're you're opening up the uh, the possibility for every single challenge in a football match to be brought into question. I think you, if you're going to do it, I think you possibly just uh, limit it to penalty incidents and then just ignore everything. So else. Lamella but, was fouled in the box against West Ham and he didn't go down yeah. and he carried on because he thought he could have a shot and he did manage to get the shot off and he shot it into the side netting from a poor angle. If he'd gone down, it would very likely have been called as a penalty because it was a foul, but the foul wasn't called because he didn't go down. If he goes down, is that simulation? Is it not simulation to stand up? Does that mean basically every penalty we've won as a club for the last 15 years was simulation, except for where someone's had their leg obliterated and maybe even then they could have possibly stood up on one leg still? Um, Are the vast, vast majority of fouls simulation? Because like any circumstance in which you aren't completely and absolutely knocked off your feet, if you go to ground, you are exaggerating contact. I think you're justified in exaggerating contact because of that Lamella example, right? He's fouled. He doesn't demonstrate that he's fouled. 
fouled, therefore he's not awarded the foul. In fact, it wasn't there wasn't a call for a penalty. No one went to the ref. The ref paid it no attention. It wasn't a conversation, even though it was definitely a penalty because he's impeded the player. I think people think it's only a foul if you completely prevent, for example, in the Lamella example, okay, you tripped Lamella, but he still managed to get to the ball. Yes, he still managed to get to the ball, but because of the trip, perhaps, we can't tell, that's impeded his ability to take that strike. Maybe if he didn't get that very light trip, he manages to strike the ball better and that shot that he managed to get away is instead a goal or maybe just a slightly better shot or maybe a shot that the keeper can touch down and then it falls back into another Spurs player's part. What is a foul? <laughs> what is simulation? Why any of these yeah. terms that we use? What do any of them mean? Um... I think my personal opinion, my personal suspicion at least, is that a lot of the conversation around what counts as diving, what counts as simulation, what counts as exaggeration comes from less of a place of fairness and justice and more about masculinity and being tough and being strong and being brave and being bold. And I don't think any of these professional athletes who play most of their careers through injury, who remain on the pitch if they're the third or maybe now fifth sub when they've obliterated their ankle, um, etc., etc., are soft because they choose to go down tactically and smartly when they've been tripped in the box because it's impeded their ability to strike a ball as well as it could have done before they were tripped. You are, of course, Nathan, absolutely correct. I mean, the issue is not around simulation. It's around the standards of refereeing and and the, as you say, what is a foul. Um, And yes, I I, I think referees need to start calling the Lamella decision as a foul in order to change to change our perception and players' perceptions of what of what a foul is. Um, so often we see a player impede another um, in a kind of non. As long as they're not doing a slide tackle, then impeding a player seems fine, doesn't it? And that's not right. That's not right. I don't know. Um, it, it could it could be we decide that we we as we as football come together and we say you can give a player a nudge, you can give a player a barge, you can give a player a kick or a trip as long as you don't completely wipe them out. If that's what's stated, if that's what's written down and that's what we we agreed or that's what is commissioned as the rules and that's the rules but we are trapped in this grey area where yeah. um, if a player on your team is lightly tripped it's a foul whereas if a player mm. on their team is lightly tripped then they're cheating yeah, yeah. it brings it back to Pogba against Dyer. Pogba done Dyer, got in the box and he, he was just waiting he that, that foul that push doesn't take Pogba down but he knew what he was playing and Lamella should have done the same yesterday in the box field contact fall over penalty and we see we see Harry Kane do it all the time, you know, encourage yeah. contact by leaving a leg out or slowing your run down and changing your stride to the extent where you're naturally going to mm. feel contact and then you hit the deck. And people hate him for it. People really get incredibly upset about him allowing himself to be fouled and then demonstrating that he's a foul. The rules as written would suggest that basically any kind of contact is a foul. The rules as perceived by fans and pundits is that it's only a foul if you're completely wiped out. And the rules as practiced by referees is anywhere between those extremes from one moment to another yeah and that, and it's kind of why VAR is not overruling decisions because it is not it's not unless it's a clear one where Fernandez has gone down where he hasn't even been touched and the ball's clearly been played VAR is unwilling to to change the change the decision there's not enough of there's not enough of an error because it still it exists within that gray area so in response to um Nathan's original question which is what is simulation there would have to be some hard lines there and one of them would be if there is no contact at all and a player um himself to the ground then that is simulation if a player uh one of the ones one of the scenarios that really annoys me is where a player might like flick out another one and then they'll go down clutching their face to try and get them sent off i I really hate that behavior i think they are fairly clear cut those ones and you know you can you can give a a yellow card for those but you're right that there has there has to be a very clear cut off because otherwise you you create another problem just like the existing one we have with with fouls in the penalty area even the contact no contact one is difficult i I think that there isn't an, an, at least an argument to be made that if you as a defender step across the striker's path and they jump over your foot, then you've you've impeded them. You've affected their stride. You've changed stride. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think if you look at the Fernandez one, 
like there's, you know, a reality <laughs> where Dyer keeps his foot in and Fernandez makes the contact as he's falling. And there's mm. the one that we exist in, in which Dyer pulls out and Fernandez is already falling over and the contact isn't made and he continues to fall over. I think even then the contact element is, is still not like a, a perfect indicator because you take some of those Kane penalties where he is committed to falling before the contact comes in. And if for whatever reason, somehow the contact doesn't come in, then he's fallen over his own cord. Physically, safety-wise, it is safer to, you know, relax into the contact. Um, because, you know, if you're planted and that contact comes in at high speed, you can, you know, again, especially if you're Harry Kane, do your ankle quite a bit of damage. Um, so uh, contact obviously gives us a lot of insight but I don't think it gives us definitive answers either I really didn't think we were going to get that much conversation out of that question <laughs> but, uh, turned out it was a banger um, what I'm going to do now is give a little treat to the people who Ooh. have stuck around um, I had a conversation with someone in midweek who who knows a Premier League manager and I don't know I don't know how true this is but he told me some snippets it's absolutely about the... completely 100% true verified by the exchange <laughs> he told me some snippets about the uh, project restart managers call uh, here's what he told me he said that they had a call on zoom and that Mourinho sat looking disinterested throughout most of the call he said for 55 I've minutes been there. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the call one of the managers said are we all in agreement then and Mourinho suddenly piped up uh, what a we what are we agreeing on it also became clear during the call when everyone else was at home that Jose Mourinho was in the Spurs training <laughs> ground where he'd also been at all of the previous calls so he'd essentially been carrying on going to the training ground when everyone else was locked down um, apparently the, a lot of the other managers are quite fond of Mourinho that he's quite accessible that he, he answers the phone and is willing to have a chat and give advice uh, not the same for Klopp interestingly um, the other thing was that apparently Mourinho kept switching his camera off every time Arteta was talking which is an interesting snippet uh, and this one I, I find really problematic um, apparently Mourinho said I've had enough of all these players moaning about Covid at which point the Watford manager took great offence particularly in light of sure. what Troy Deeney's been campaigning for. And Mourinho's response is, well, he's paid a lot of money. Wow. Uh, one final snippet. Uh, Arteta made a kind of salient point about player safety and Mourinho said well I presume we're going to be having a zoom call for the masseuses and the typists and the catering managers to ensure that they're safe to go back to work so there you go an insight I don't know take 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 it uh, as, as you will who knows if that's true but that's just a bit of information that someone um, told me this week and said that I could say on the podcast there we go that is the extra inch for for this week we've got loads more questions to answer on transfers and given that we've got a little break now between our next match uh, between now and the next match we will do that in that break so if you have more questions about potential transfer targets feel free to email us podcast at the extra inch.co.uk contact us on twitter at the extra inch uh, we always put calls out for questions on twitter and we sometimes do on reddit as well thank you boys thank you Wendy you've been listening to the extra inch thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production thanks to Barney for being Italian thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork Thanks to David Lindner for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindner. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would be really